Next quarter is three months in business. Next quarter in sports is in 12 minutes or 15 minutes, right? Leadership at the pro sports level or at the, at the organized sports level is different because in business, there are no referees. What would you say is one of the biggest struggles you have growing your company, 75 employees, and the time that you've done over 30 years is a long time. The things that you can't predict, right? How do you, how do you respond to things that you have no idea are coming? If you have injuries, they don't cancel the season. Right? You still got to play the game and you still got to try to win it, right? In business, it's the same way. Like if, if there's a disruption, somebody's going to do the business. Probably a hundred kids nationwide that are making a lot of money. Made playoffs 10 out of 13 years. You know what it takes to be a high achiever and falling short of the mark, but always having a standard of never falling below the mark that you're at already. So I think that's the key to consistency. I don't let bad plays become bad days. You know what I mean? So we figure it out. Okay, so I'm excited to have Carl Banks, uh, a former linebacker in the NFL, played for the New York Giants, the Redskins, the Browns. Uh, he played college football at Michigan State. Um, I'm from Cleveland, so uh, pretty familiar, nice. and looked Good. you up even more so knowing that I was going to get an opportunity to talk to you. So welcome, and really appreciate you joining me. Thank you for having me. I'm I'm thrilled to be here. All right, sounds good. So I want to start off with just a little bit of um, the transition. You made it this big transition from this, you know, NFL world to the business world, and I'm curious to know if you could just give us a little bit of background and some context, um, just when that was and how hard that was. Yeah, so um, my transition literally started my second year as a New York Giants football player. Um, my first year after that off that off season, I went back and finished my communications degree at Michigan State, and then I was ready to hit the ground running. So I had two um, two really big objectives. Um, when I realized I'm going to be playing professional football, one was to pursue um, opportunities in the communications field. And I started that process right away, uh, developing a pregame and a postgame show. And I went out and found my own sponsor. And that kind of uh, was the gateway into me being the Giants analyst today, color analyst today. Um, but this was be long before players were doing these types of things. I went out and number one, found a sponsor. But number two, uh, I would go on radio after a game, win or lose. I would be on. And so that was the the beautiful part about, you know, just kind of looking forward and not knowing what my my career would hold in terms of years. And then the other piece of it, um, I was a starter athlete. Um, starter had just gotten into the sidelines um, for the NFL, and I was one of the players that was one of their brand ambassadors, spokespeople, or whatever. And I'm looking, and I got a chance to meet David Beckerman on many occasions, and just his passion for the sport and how uh, sport should be viewed uh, through the lens of fashion and the runway was the sideline and the players were the models. And he had this whole 
<laughs> idea of, of making fandom a wearable experience, right? And so, you know, you're looking at all these great products, which to this day are very timeless. And I said to myself, how do I get into this business? Because when I grow up, I want to be just like David Beckerman. Um, not knowing at the time that if I had to look fast forward, I would be now the guardian of the starter label. But I was looking for opportunities like to really get into sports licensing because I saw just what David Beckerman had created that no one else had did. And that was to create this sense of uh, this aesthetic of sports that transcended the sporting goods hardware store look, right? Um, there was a there's a Crosby Sports in Madison Square Garden that used to make our jerseys and make our shoulder pads, right? And uh, what David Beckerman did was, you know, create these beautiful sweaters and all of this. You know, you, we know what starter is. It, it just defined, redefined how we consumed our sports visually, right? And so I'm like, where's an opportunity for me? and to start. And so I looked around and I said, man, nobody's doing leather jackets. And I'm from the Midwest. So leather was big, you know, in the Midwest because we had winners and everything. So I decided I wanted to create this, this line of NFL leather jackets. Nobody was doing it. And so I found ironically enough, a sample house uh, on 38th Street, but I'm a, I'm a lifelong um, Knicks fan and was a season ticket holder for 30 years. So when I got to New York, first thing I did was bought Knicks tickets, right? And there's a guy sitting next to me. Um, he knew I played for the Giants, but he's like, what else do you do? And I'm like, well, I'm trying to start this leather business. And he's like, Oh, you are. So he's like, I, I sell tags and labels in the garment industry. So I see everybody and I know everybody. Uh, as Michael Cohen, who's my, he's since passed away, was my partner. Uh, we became partners, but he helped me develop that collection. And so, and I had no design experience, but I, you know, I understood aesthetics, right? And you find out quickly in the uh, garment industry especially outerwear, you have some experts that can really guide you and what do's and don'ts, right? And I made some, some really cool and complex jackets because now I'm looking at sports through a different lens, right? It just wasn't red, white, and blue. And so we create these jackets, some were suede, some were leather. And it was a collection that I was really proud of. So I'm thinking, I'm like, okay, now's the time for me to approach the NFL and the NBA about doing leather because nobody in the market's doing it. So NFL thought it was a great idea and they gave me a license to fail. What does that license to fail look like? Big and tall only leather jackets. Um, because there was a market for it, because no one was doing it, um, I was able to, to create a small business um, 
but one that could scale as soon as I got regular sizes. And so um, I went back to NFL maybe a year later, 18 months, because Foot Locker gave me my, my first order. Um, Rick Mina was over at Foot Locker. And he gave me my first order and they did well with it in a few big and tall stores, like king size, big and tall. So I went back to NFL and I said, and keep in mind, this all of this stuff I'm doing on Mondays and Tuesdays when I'm not playing football. So on my off days, like we had an early day on Mondays, I'm in the city, in the sample room. Tuesdays, I'm in the city all day. And so I go back to NFL and say, look, these levers um, are doing good. I would like, you know, see if you guys could extend my license. And they said, sure, we'll give you big and tall suede only jackets now. Have at it. And I'm like, I'm not deterred because even when I introduced the leather jackets, all the existing licensees knew that leather was out there, but nobody seemed to have the, the competency to make a leather jacket other than a black one with a little logo on the left chest. And so, you know, we developed suede, which was even better because now you can, you can integrate so many different colors. We got it. Foot Locker went to NFL and said, look, you got to do something with these guys. JC Penny was like, look, you got to give this kid a chance because my customers like these jackets. So um, the NFL said, okay, we see that you're number one serious about this, but number two, you've found a market. Now keep in mind, my ultimate goal was to be what starter is. It's like, every every product category i'm just developing from you know a lens where the opportunity existed and i could really create a best in class um garment so nfl says okay we see you have a you know something here that people want so here's what we would do we love what you're doing but we also like to make money so in order for you to scale this and get regular sizes, you're going to have to, you know, bring on a partner who can help you scale. And so, you know, my partner, Michael Cohen, sold labels to the number one leather manufacturer in the world, which was G3 Apparel, right? And so I went to, to G3 with samples in hand, and I met with the CEO, uh, Morris Goldfarb, and they had just gone public. And so um, Morris had no interest in sports whatsoever. <laughs> they had just had a record year selling like a members only bomber jacket, right? So he had no interest in me. He had no interest in, um, in doing sports product, but he was the only one who could scale a product that had multiple colors because you had to literally have to set up factories to do different um different colors and so um about after four meetings um the agreement was you know because when he first saw me he said i you know this is my family business i don't want to be in business with an athlete because you guys all get in trouble right and you probably don't show up and i was like no 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 this is my business here's my samples i have sales i need to grow this and um so after about four meetings, he agreed that he would set up 
a couple factories to dedicate to um, sports apparel. So once that happened, all bets were off, right? In in this category, because when I would go to a customer like JCPenney, I would have more jackets than some of my competitors had t-shirts. So my competitors would show up, if they want to compete, they would show up with one black leather jacket. I had a color for every, all 32 teams times each league. So, I mean, you could, so all of my, all of my customers, they all didn't have the same jacket. You know, it was that type of thinking strategically, like, or if I can diversify my SKUs, I could sell more retailers, different product, and they'll all feel special. Just like if you were to do a t-shirt, right? You get a different graphic. You get... So we did that. We had like rolling racks. And I remember being on the road with like five cases of leather jackets, right? Um, and JCPenney and Foot Locker and those guys. And so that grew, um, but also because G3's core competency with not just leather, but outerwear. So I knew I could be best in class in outerwear. And there weren't a lot of pieces out there um, aside from the iconic starter stuff. So I'm like, I'm wearing starter, but I want to be in this business. So I created, you know, an outerwear collection. And so if we fast forward to today, just in the outerwear category alone, um, we still are best in class in all in all outerwear across all sports leagues, including college. Um, apparel, we are doing extremely well, um, especially on the fashion side. And then so we how, have women. how big and how many people are involved in the organization at G3? Uh, G3 apparel corporately is a $3.8 billion company. Wow. I founded the sports division. I can't give you those numbers, but it's good. And <laughs> my staff, I have a total of about 75 people. Okay. Um, including sales reps. And what is your day-to-day -day activities with the business? Same as it was when I first started. Really? You know, I made the pledge, you know, I have to be present. I, I you know, I oversee design, a lot of design anyway. Um, but I'm in the office every day that I'm not at the Giants. And, and if I'm at the Giants, I'm here half a day. I go do what I have to do at the Giants and then I come here to the office. And how long, how many years have you been doing this? Uh, 30 something now. Wow. And the 75 people that you have, how instrumental were you in hiring these individuals or leading? Are you I still have my, my day one designer, my day one outerwear designer. I still have him. Um, all the other hires I'm involved with. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's still my, my business. So give me a favor yeah. and talk to me about the leadership challenges you had as a player compared to the leadership challenges that you have in business? Um, leadership challenges as a player. Um, and being a team captain, um, first, you got to lead by example. Um, secondly, you've got you to manage different personalities, you know, and different motivations. Not everybody plays the game for the same reasons, right? Um, and you got to figure out how to appeal. And, you know, coaches do this better than the, the, the players, but they, they task their 
their captains with, you know, getting the message across, right? But, you know, you spend time with your teammates and you find out their motivations. And some of them are different because they come from different walks of life and different circumstances. So they play the game to meet whatever goal it is to better themselves and their families, but it's all financial. You know what I mean? At the end of the day, get to the next contract, win. Um, and do you feel like it's that way at work? No, so I'm, I'm gonna get to that. So leadership at the pro sports level or at the, at the organized sports level is different because in business, there are no referees, <laughs> right? And so, you've got to be able to connect with people. People can leave, they can quit, and you don't know what their circumstances are, right? So you have to make sure that, um, and this is where sports really uh, prepares you for the life and business because, and it's so funny, because adversity in business, outside of something tragic happening, just from a business day-to-day, you resolve those in a quarter. Next quarter, we have to be better. Next quarter is three months in business. Next quarter in sports is in 12 minutes or 15 minutes, right? Um, and then the adversity it, that you have to deal with from play to play in, in sports is done under physical um, duress all the time. So it's it's succeed or fail. Then 45 seconds later, you got to succeed or fail again, right? So when you walk into uh, a work environment and you've kind of been baptized by fire, some of the things that are making people crazy are just not that serious, right? So I can, I can communicate to people um, how to resolve some things, right? Um, but it's also in having won two Super Bowls and have played for two of the greatest teachers of football in, 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 and in their leadership with Bill Belichick and Bill Parcells, there's a standard also that I want everyone to adhere to and not to cut corners and not to compromise. Um, to be best in class, um, you have to have standards. And you have to be able to communicate those not only internally, but externally to your, um, your customers. What's your, what's your biggest leadership challenge that you can think of when you think about the world of work? You know, it's funny when I hear you talk about what you just said, it's true. Like the adversity that you faced in sports, then you get into a boardroom and you realize the problems that they have, just like, you know, you've been able to overcome these kind of things. It's There's a lot of similarities. I can see how it parallels it and that you can handle things at work a lot sure. easier than you can than on the field. But what would you say is one of the biggest struggles you have growing your company, 75 employees and the time that you've done over 30 years, it's a long time. Yeah. Um, the biggest, it's no different than sports. The, the, um, the things that you can't predict, right? How do you, how do you respond to things that, you have no idea are coming. Supply chain disruption, right? Uh, retailers going out of business or a particular retailer decides to take the entire Omnicom channel and now you have to work with them, right? How do you become important to those guys? What are your in-game adjustments is what I would call it, right? 
in game, your halftime adjustments. If you're at the end of a quarter and you know change is coming, but you don't know what it's going to look like, right. you just got to know what your options are in the event that something comes. So you minimize it. That's that's always the challenge in business because um, there are so many moving parts and in industry, you know, whether it's on the manufacturing, the retail um, or the supply chain aspect of it, or even on the human resources piece of it, um, you got to be able to make adjustments and you can't like my saying, well, we know in sports, if you have injuries or you are hit with whatever unpredictable thing that happens, they don't cancel the season, right? <laughs> you still got to play the game and you still got to try to win it, right? So you got to figure it out. Um, in business, it's the same way. Like if, if there's a disruption, somebody's going to do the business, right? Why not you? Why not be winning at it? So you, as soon as you get the information, you process it and you see how you can navigate it to be um, viable. So it's, it's like, it's always, it's the same challenge. It's just, you just look at it differently. If it's your quarterback gets hurt in the first quarter of a game, New York jets, right? Four plays into the game, Aaron Rodgers is down. They didn't cancel the season, right? right? They still got to play it. So now how do you redistribute uh, responsibilities to make sure that you can still have success when um, your best player that you were counting on is down. So they still are competing and they still are in a wild card conversation, right? And, and I'll give you a classic example. There was a, there was a shift in um, licensing years ago when Reebok um, paid the NFL a lot of money for exclusive rights to everything. And so one of the categories that um, they took was outerwear, but it was outerwear at all the major retailers that I was doing business with. So I could no longer do business with Foot Locker and JCPenney and all those guys, right? And so I remember having this conversation with my CEO, uh, Morris Gofarb, he says, so what are you going to do? Like, they just took all of your business. The NFL allowed them to take your entire business. And I said, we're going to be okay, right? Um, and he said, I don't understand it. He's like, I don't want you to have to fire people, but you got to figure out what you're going to do. And like, I'm built differently because I come from a, you know, Sports world number one. And then again, like I said, I played for two of the greatest teachers of football and preparation and all those things for champions. Um, I just looked at the business. I said, okay, so they took this part away, right? Now, if you can recall early on, what I told you is I was doing a product that nobody else could do or nobody else was willing to do. Um, Reebok was no exception. So they took the rights and they warehoused them. And so now I can't sell, but they're not, they're not servicing a customer, right? And I'm saying, okay, well, who else is left? It was all the small mom and pop stores. Well, I'm killing it. I'm like, okay, well, they, we don't have them, but these other people never could get my jackets anyway. Now I can give them the business while JCPenney 
complains that they don't have leather jackets anymore and the mom and pop store in the in the mall is selling all of these great jackets that they used to have, right? So you spend 18 months of letting all your major retailers look through the glass and know that they can't have what they once had. They put a lot of pressure on Reebok and on the NFL to say, what well, something's got to give here because we have lost business and you guys aren't servicing us. And, you know, I would relay that information to the NFL. I even went to Reebok and said, look, we'll partner with you. And they're like, nope. But once those rights got warehoused and um, the NFL knew that they had customers that weren't being serviced, and JCPenney was a major part of um, the retail matrix for NFL at the time because they had to simply in sports shop and shop. Um, they just started to open it back up to me and Reebok basically conceded like, yeah, we weren't using it. We just didn't want anybody else to, but all I did is create more of a demand. So, you know, that's basically your audible. That's your halftime adjustment, right? You know, um, you knew, well, you knew it was coming anyway, once they announced it. And so I just had to plan, you know, I didn't sit back and say, um, wow, they just took my business and I don't know what I have to do, right? Um, I'm like, well, I created something that nobody had and to this day, it's still the best in class. So I just need to find someone who will take the product, right? which is easy. So, and, you know, I think part of that mentality also stems from the fact that I was the number three player picked in the draft to a team that already had four all pro linebackers. <laughs> right. And the first conversation I had with Harry Carson, our hall of fame, uh, captain and middle linebacker, I went to introduce myself to him and Lawrence Taylor, the great Lawrence Taylor. And Lawrence said, hello. Harry was like, so what the hell are you going to do to get on the field? So it was like, you got to figure it out from day one because they got four all-pro linebackers and you got to figure out how you're going to be an important part of this group. And, um, you know, I think my career spoke for itself. Yeah. But that how did is... You, so how did, but how did you do it? I mean, how, mentally, yes. But did you our work? Did you, like, what was your disciplines back then? To get I, had a, I had a core competency. You know, I had a skill set that, um was better than those guys right in, in in one regard right and i was super i was super athletic basketball player but i was a very good run stopper right and that made lawrence taylor better it made harry carson better um and i was as good the best in the business at that um and it's undisputable right um people to this day are still teaching off of my my tapes, my game tapes. And so um, I had that, um, I had to drive, but you know, I did, I had a skill set, right? So um, you have a core competency and you build on that and you find a way to, to fit in, so. Yeah, yeah. What would you say is um, the hardest 
thing that you've gone through in business? What's the, when you look back all the years you've been in business, what's one of the hardest things you've had and, and how did you deal with it? Um, well, there are two hard things, the Reebok transition, right? And then um, when our world shut down. Right. Um, those were two. Yeah, talk to, me about, talk to me about the pivot when you had to pivot when that happened. Well, everybody did, right? So in, in the sports licensing business, it would be the equivalent of force majeure. Right, which had never happened. So it was new for everybody. So the first thing you had to do is you had to talk to your licensing partners and say, look, we're going to all need some relief here. We want to stay in business. So let's, you know, figure it out. Um, our company, G3, kept its factories open. It's like anybody that needed goods, we were able to ship them. Most companies didn't. Most companies shut down and say, we'll get back to you when it opens back up. But we stayed available um, and we were able to ship. Uh, to any customer that they needed goods. So that was one of the bigger pivots and adjustments. And then just, it was just, you know, communicating through a, during a tough time and people not knowing, and you're talking to people who may not necessarily even know your business because the other people were furloughed or, you know, decided to, that they didn't want to do it until this thing opened back up. So, um, you know, just being communicative and understanding um your customers and your end users needs um because when the the leagues didn't shut down um fans were going to still be there and we wanted to make sure that you know there was some type of business that we could continue to do um with our retailers to support their the fandom let me ask you a question has have you had anything to do with nil i mean are you involved with college athletes because of all the changes that went on? Um, so I have a different approach to answer your question. Yes. Um, but the approach is a little different. I'm not necessarily chasing um, the top name athletes because I can't compete. Number one, um, when you have shoe companies, right. it's just, it's hard to compete. Right. But there, there are other ways um, in terms of the NIL approach that we're looking at from a more collective team perspective. And that's all I'll say about that. Right. It's amazing. Cause I mean, I would imagine if someone gets a call from you, mm -hmm. you're going to get real excited really quick. Cause you know, <laughs> yeah, we're working on, we have two things, two uh, big programs in place and we'll talk about those at some point. Yeah. It's amazing. Cause I, um, even from my own business, um, I'm connected to Ohio state and, uh -huh. but, friends of lots of the coaches. And we had a meeting where we talked about how can we get the kids who are not the highest tier up, you know, how can we get them involved? How can we use this for recruiting? How can we do all these things? Right. And it's amazing to me that more businesses have not plugged in and used these kids who are willing to. Because they are afraid. They all think that the asking price is right. astronomical, but it's only, I would say probably a hundred kids nationwide that are making a lot of money. Right. Right. Like someone told me a story about a major national championship program where, you know, they had some of their starting players that were doing things for like a thousand bucks. Right. Right. So it still comes down to like this, you know, basic stuff for some of these kids. So, you know, if you can put together a program that right. they can feel like they're a part of that's, you know, 
like I said, it's like maybe a hundred kids that are making all the money right now. And what's even more incredible is that your ability to play unbelievable in college football, you would think on the surface, that's your win. But actually mm -hmm. the kids who have a hundred thousand people following them on social media yeah. really is the big win because they're yeah. watching this kid. And Correct. so it's amazing the mindset yeah. of like that people aren't tapping in. So yeah, I think that's going to be, you know, it's still new. Obviously it's still, it's new. still new and people are still trying to figure it out. Um, and then when you pursue you know, those top guys, they've, you know, they've been living NIL, NIL life since AAU or whatever it is. So they, they get it. Right. Um, and, you know, the shoe companies have first dibs on those, those kids anyway. Right. Um, but there are some other really great opportunities that we're, we're pursuing. That's great. Can you share with me two people that you feel I mean, I'm sure it's very hard for you because, again, you're surrounded by so many incredible people. Mm -hmm. But in the sports world and in the business world, two people that you feel have had a huge, a huge influence or impact on you and something that they've taught you that you carry with you, you know, in your day to day. Um, you know, I would say on the sports side of it. Um, wow. There's been a few people. <laughs> but I would say my my high school coach, Moses Lacey. Wow. And um, I would just have to say Bill. I'm not going to say which Bill because they both are. So Bill. <laughs> and, um, you know, I think my high school coach, Moses Lacey, um, he taught me, you know, mental toughness, but also the value of being prepared. Right? Because you know, conditioning and being prepared is part of being mentally tough. Um, I think Bill taught me, um, you know, just a more refined way of, of preparation and the value of accountability um, and always seeing a path right there's always a path if you're willing to do what it takes right. and so that is uh some key lessons from uh the sports world and you know why those guys mean so much to me and then uh on the business side i would say hmm Clearly, um, the CEO of G3, Morris Goldfarb, who's just been a great example of leadership um, and resourcefulness. Um, and you combine that with what I know in sports, you know, we feed off of each other. Um, and then another example uh, on a business side would probably be Magic Johnson. You know, I've, I, I've known him since I was in high school. He's the reason why I went to Michigan State. Um, but his example is just incredible. And so, you know, though I don't talk to him a lot, but when we do get a chance to talk, you know, he's always, you know, some gems and um, of wisdom and just his example. Like he is so easy if you, because I've known him, like I said, since I was 16 years old, but just to look at the way he does it, and it's not complex when you know him, right? And so you say, wow, okay, 
okay, I see what he's doing here. Okay, I see what he's doing here. And there's a lot you can pattern yourself off of. And it's not, um, you know, to the outside world, you know, it, there's levels to it. And there are levels to it. But knowing the man um, and seeing it, you kind of, that's kind of one of those, I get it. Oh, I get, I get how he did that. I get how he did that. And this is why, you know, uh, he moves this way or this is how. So, and you know, I don't know the intricate details of any of his deals, but I get them. I understand why, right? right? So those, those guys are the two on the business side of, um, of things. And there are many other influences, but those two be the two main ones. Right. I appreciate you sharing that. How would you, um, you know, when you come into a business after a career like you've had in sports, where you're surrounded by leaders, champions, and a mindset that the average person just cannot comprehend. I'm, I'm sure. I mean, so you, yeah, I can imagine I call it the curse of knowledge. You don't even know what it's like to not know because it's, right. in, it's ingrained in you. Mm -hmm. Being around just your employees, growing your company. Um, my first question is, is do you invest in leadership development? Do, do you do it? Do you, how do you, how do you build the culture at your company? Yeah, I think um, the culture is, should be a reflection of, of me. Um, one of accountability, um, one of, um, delegation, you know, because each, if you look at every sports team there, if it's a position group, there are people that are leaders of that group. Right. And they all have the same mandate, but they want to have to hold people accountable in their area. So I have designers that have to hold, um, their subordinates, accountable. I have sales, I have marketing, all the above. And then there's me who have to hold everybody accountable. And I also have to lead by example. And um, I don't let bad plays become bad days. You know what I mean? So we figure it out and um, we move forward. And that's not sometimes without friction. It's not sometimes without me being um, super upset at times i'm not a screamer screamer but you know my voice is raised a few times with adults um but it is you know we do what's necessary but we have a culture and i get frustrated sometimes you talk about the gift of knowing that's like sometimes when you see really really good players in sports that are horrible coaches right. because their expectations are different like they don't understand why people are not being not able to do the things that they do. And they sometimes forget that they're gifted beyond what the average person is. Right. So they get frustrated when they can't get other players to see the game like they see it or to do things like they do it. Um, but, you know, for me, the, I guess the, the, great part about it is I'm just transferring a mindset into a different industry mm -hmm. um, where it there's, a, there's a big gap. There's a big gap. I mean, that you have to, yeah, close. it is, but there's the other gap is there's not, it's, it, there's no physicality involved. Right. So I can, I can um, walk into any business environment. I'm able to evaluate it, assess it, ask questions, mm -hmm. um, probably understand it and help people understand a different way or, or a better way of, of looking at something. So, um, 
Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, that just the mindset of, and it's an advantage of being in competitive sports and to uh, have been a two-time champion and to have made, made playoffs, you know, nine out of 13 years, 10 out of 13 years. Right. Um, you know what it takes to be a high achiever and falling short of the mark, but always having a standard of never falling below the mark that you're at already. So I think that's the key to consistency um, in business. Interesting. So I, um, with, I, I had a company for 25 years. I recently sold it and I had a leadership program that I did and we practiced like a sports team would practice because we knew that in order to build trust and to have at the heart of performance, it's going to be trust. You know, you don't want to mm -hmm. sabotage. And so coming from a sports background where you are day in and day out going to war, fighting for performance and then loving your teammates where you're with them all the time mm -hmm. and then trying to transition to a business where I would imagine People could be intimidated of you of you if they first meet you because they don't know you and you've got this incredible presence and you've got this history. And so I would imagine you had to work really hard to to not only break down the barrier of fear, but also to have that trust consistently be built over time with the people that you're working with. Um, I'm a communications major too, Chad. So yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I understand, I understand how to communicate. Um in, in, in dealing with people. That's the other part of it too. And then, you know, the, um, the different dynamics of athletes, like I said, they're not one monolith. So you've got to be able to communicate in a language that everybody understands each individually. So, um, understanding that and, you know, just having a background in communications also helps me, um, to disarm sometimes, right? And you know, break, or, break down yeah. the fear, right? Yeah, you, I'm sure you want people to tell you the truth. You want them to give you feedback, but yeah, they're scared, right? Well, part of that too is understand people knowing that you understand the business that you're in, also, right? right? You don't want to be disrespected, um, you know, in a sense like he has no idea. He's just in here screaming. It's like having a coach that has no knowledge of anything. They just scream and, you know, bark out directions. So it's it's a two-way street. So it talk, turned. To me, talk to me about the accountability. When you made the comment before about on the field, how you have 15 minutes, you know, to pivot versus, you know, a quarter. When you've got people that you're holding accountable, well, I would imagine in the sports arena, you know, you screw up, you make a mistake. They can pull you out right there in that game. But in yeah. business, it's going to be a little different. How, how many chances do you give your employees? How do you handle, you know, um, corrective measures when you see them making mistakes? And, and you know, I'm just curious to know accountability, how you do that. With so the accountability aspect of it, um, I think, is based on the standard that is set, right? We strive to be best in class, Right. Sometimes factories mess up and you're late delivering product, right? Um, sometimes there's a screw up in design detail. Um, but when you have a standard, everybody knows what that standard is. I don't have to find out through third parties. Like those people come to me and say, look, I effed up, right? I was supposed to have this done and I did it differently than what we were supposed to have it done. And so the next um, course of action is let's communicate with the customer and let them know what they're expecting, what, what to expect. And if they don't like it, 
we can, you know, either be late or we'll take the cancellation, right? Right. Um, if a factory screws up something and we catch it here because, you know, we're dealing with factories overseas, um, the communication is not always great. There's probably one or two people in the office that directly communicates with the factory, right? And if they're not getting the information um, or they got the information and didn't want to say anything to try, they were going to try to resolve it themselves before the clock ran out and it didn't, they'll come and say, hey, look, this is what I tried to do. You know, I knew this product was bad and we tried to fix it. Um, we couldn't get it done, um, but we have a great alternative that we think our customer would like, right? Um, and we have that um, level of accountability because we set a standard from day one. I set a standard from day one. Um, you mean, and, you, you mean you do what when you hire people, you, you meet with them and talk to them about that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I have enough people on staff now that if they're interviewing, I might be the first or the last person they speak to in the process. But I pretty much assure you that if I'm hiring a designer, my design director is pretty much going to find out whether it's somebody that fits our culture. Right. Right. And if it's somebody that fits our culture in their eyes, then they'll say, Carl, I think we like him. Why don't you sit with him? And my line of question may be something totally different. Yeah. Right. Um, because I just want to feel like I have the right people on my team. So, and I mean, I've had to fire some people um, or their group leaders have had to fire them because they just weren't holding up their end of the bargain. And that's a good thing because when we have standards that are, you know, systemically um, uniform, then it doesn't take me to identify. Everybody knows what we all expect because now it's everybody's, right. right? My name is on the door and my name is in the label, but everybody has a sense of ownership and a sense of pride in the product that they, they develop. You have a favorite interview question to try to help you determine if you're sitting with the right person? Uh, whew, um, no, it just, I, you know, cause again, I'm a communicator. So I have conversations and, you know, oh. I start to ask questions based on how our conversation is going. And, you know, it's not like, not like in sports when someone says, if you uh, don't get five sacks in one game, will your attitude be different? You know, it's not like that, but I just want to understand processes and how people deal with it. And then we go from there. Cool. So talk to me about being an outlier in your industry and the value of collaboration. You know, I think it's important when you're able to collaborate with other organizations who can do what you want that you need to be done in order for you to scale. And then you've got something that they want and you bring those together. And I know you've got a lot of collaborations going on. It's one of the things I wanted to end with today is mm -hmm. that you've got some really cool collaborations that I was made aware of. And the value of the collaboration versus competitors, people always wanting to compete and, and, and disrupt the industries. And I just think that collaboration has a powerful effect when you have the right people involved. Talk to me a little bit about how you've used that to grow your business. Um, so collaborations, as I view them, have to be mutually beneficial, right? Um, clearly, having a brand like Starter or a brand like DKNY, um, they're legacy brands. They 
were very and are very instrumental in um, pop culture, in sports, um, transcending um, sports, entertainment, and culture. And so when you have a legacy brand that still resonates and then you have people, and I'll just take Starter, for instance, there are starter stories. Everybody has a starter story. And so when you have someone like uh, Rude come into your showroom and Rugi says, man, I, I love my starter jacket and I always wanted to do a collab with the brand because it's an emotional connection, right? And I'm like, this is beautiful, right? And this guy, you know, he has a different aesthetic, but he is true to um, the the DNA of starter. He didn't want to change it to look something other than a classic silhouette that he put his um, spin on. Or you take something like Coca-Cola, right? Another legacy brand that still resonates. And they're like, well, we want to do a collaboration with you guys. And I'm like, okay, um, what does that look like? So we spent time designing it and we came up with some great product. Um, so, the beautiful part also is you have the brand itself that resonates and then you have the brand sports stories that continues to resonate because you have starter has been a part of every major sport um, in defining what that looked like, what fandom looked like. So when you have the licenses to create great product, then that's a whole nother level of collaboration. Number one, you're, you're collaborated with the leagues because they've given you the license to their marks. But then you have legacy opportunities. Like in the NFL, they do um, legacy games now, right? Well, all of those legacy games, guess whose marks those are? The starter. Right. Um, if you had a baby blue Houston Oilers jacket, it was starter. Right. Um, so uh, starter is part of that. And then even when you look at the NBA with their hardwood classics, all that product, most of it was starter at some period. Right. Right. So there's opportunities to collaborate within the sports leagues or by retailer. Um, and then now with the, um, the West NBA have, it's called city something, um, where they change their floors and they have this really great selling opportunity, which gives us an opportunity to do even more with some of our, um, classic silhouettes. So yeah, the power collaboration is fun. Um, and it's not, it doesn't always have to be the two most powerful brands, right? There has to be a story. There has to be a uh, a narrative around the collaboration, like just dropping something with somebody famous or with some other big company and it doesn't have a story connected to it. Is it really a collaboration? Right. You know, it's label slapping at that point. Right. Right. Um, so 
you know, there are different levels of collaboration that that um, we are involved with, and you know, super excited also about our um, National Hockey League um, drop that's coming up. Um, and that's basically within NHL. It's our collaboration with NHL, but also as a result of that, um, and I definitely want to make sure that, you know, there's always a community component to it. Um, with NHL, where Starter is going to partner um, with Foot Locker and Ice Hockey in Harlem, which is a youth hockey league with inner city kids in it and we're going to do a, a really cool capsule you know elevated capsule that is you know ice hockey and harlem centric so it's like cool. fun stuff that's that's a collaboration also right that yeah, you can sure. get behind people can get behind and, and really rock with wow those are the best ones you have a yeah. social you know you combine a social impact with a collaboration correct you get your whole community involved that's the best that's the best yep. yeah that's yeah so, um, so where can people, I mean, people who are, who may not be familiar, where, where can they find out more? Where can they, where do you, where do you um, suggest they go shop? I mean, where's the, like the, the hub for everybody? Well, any of the sports leagues.com, any of the sports teams.com and then there's fanatics and then there's foot locker and then there's snipes. And then there's Jimmy jazz, uh, Dick's Hibbets, um, starter.com. Cool. Right. Um, and then, you know, if you want to follow me, I always give information. Also, it's uh, on X is Carl Banks at, uh, at Carl Banks, G-I-I-I. And the Instagram is the same and the threads is the same, too. All right. Good. I got, I got one. Our time's almost up. I got one more question for you. Okay. So you and I are having a conversation three years from now. Mm -hmm. And we're looking back at the last 36 months. What has to happen for you specifically for you to be happy with your progress of what you're doing and where you're going? Uh, if I told you that, then you know what my expectations were. I don't want to tell you that uh, because I do have competitors out there, but I, I would just tell you it's, it's uh, involving growth um, to become, you know, more important to all of my, um, retail partners, but also my direct to consumer business, which I think is underdeveloped, um, would be in full swing. And I think it's underdeveloped because, you know, as retail uh, continues to shift, change, we don't know exactly what it looks like in 36 months, but you have the ability to create your own shop and shop. You have the ability to, um, create a cadence for all the product that you want to introduce. Um, so I'm, I'm, you know, that's one of my big initiatives right now. It's like having a great quarterback with average receivers. And now we got to upgrade to make sure that um, we are, that part of our business is on par with the rest of the team um, because it's, it's important um, in terms of just creating a cadence for, your product introductions. Yeah. Uh, one other question I forgot to ask you was uh, your thoughts on college, going to college. You know, today, as as I hire people um, and they come in with a college degree, I personally don't, doesn't mean much for me because I'm looking for a culture fit, someone who's got the skills. Sure. To I'm curious to know like, um, advice that you could give 
kids in high school who aren't sure what they want to do. They see the world changing and the world of work and they either, they're not sure what they want to do, but mm -hmm. they going into debt and getting a degree may not be the best thing in the world for them because they may not have a clue what they want to do. Where's your take? What's your thoughts on that? And, and um, I think, you know, as I, as I spend a lot of time with interns here, um, to go and experience, like do internships, experience life until you find out what it is. Because when you're doing internships, you, 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 you learn how the world works in some capacity, right? And then if you go to the next internship, you'll see how those two are somehow interconnected in the world of something, right? And you'll find your fit, right? Um, you know, we are upon a generation now that quite honestly, they work different, right? Their brains work different. Um, they may be super efficient at things that we are used to doing every day, right? right? We got to show up every day and we got to do X, Y, and Z. And these kids grew up the last five years, remote learning, right? And right. some are super efficient at it. Some are not, right? So you may be dealing with a person who doesn't think hard work matters and the other person that think hard works matters, but I can do it a little differently than the traditional methods. And that's where we as leaders of young people have to understand and, and know about um, these kids because, you know, what may be considered lazy if we take a minute to understand how they think and how they process, you might be better um, in some areas than you currently are. So that's my biggest, um, biggest thing. Very cool. Okay, my friend. Thank All right. you so much for everything. I think I just went dark here on my Yeah, side. you did. Not sure what happened there, but says uh, your temperature or something was too hot. <laughs> Got me all excited. You're running hot. I want you to know I appreciate your time and uh, best of luck with the collaborations that you have set up. I'm going to get released audio Chat. on the podcast and I'll get you some other assets you can share as well on your side. All right. Appreciate it, man. I just want to thank you so much for your time. Best of luck with everything. And again, uh, it was really nice talking to you. My pleasure. Okay. Thanks. My all friend. right. Thank yeah. you. Bye-bye. Yeah.